Church, do you have a favorite meal memory? Not so much a favorite food, but maybe a favorite place where you've gathered with others? You know, here in the Ville, we have no shortage of meal places. We are ranked by several different publications as one of the best foodie cities in the nation, which is pretty cool. In fact, we have so many places to eat. You could eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at a different restaurant every day for every day of the year. In fact, you could even do what my son does and throw a fourth meal in there, like dinner number two on the regular. You could have four meals a day, each meal at a different restaurant, do that every day of the year, you still would not hit every restaurant in our city. That's wild. That's crazy. There's a lot of places to eat here. So do you have a favorite one for yourself to go to? Or do you have a favorite meal memory? Maybe not so much the place, but the people. Favorite shared experience with the people you've eaten with. Perhaps it's a just a regular occurrence, those yearly birthday celebrations or anniversary celebrations, maybe family holiday gatherings over the years. Maybe it's just the ordinary family dinner around the family table. You know, there's something special about the table, something special about gathering for a meal with each other at the table. My wife and I were fortunate. We both grew up in families that celebrated uh, just a regular family dinner time, uh, several times during the week, frequent and often, we gathered around the table for a family meal. Pretty cool. We've tried to pass that on to our kids as well, and we're not perfect at that, but as often as we can, we try to have dinner together as a family. And there's abundant research that shows the benefits of that. That, that kids who grow up in a family where they eat on the regular with mom and dad, with siblings, well, they have lower rates of depression, lower rates of anxiety, lower rates of, uh, of teen pregnancy and substance abuse and all those kinds of things. They have higher rates of resilience. They have higher rates of self-esteem. They just feel better about themselves. They get better grades, and they are happier on all the scales. But I think undergirding all of that is that there's just something special about the table. There's something special about coming together and sharing a meal with one another. You know, there's something about this table. It's a place of belonging, a place of acceptance, a place of togetherness, a place where everyone's equal at the table. There's something beautiful about that. I don't think it's by accident that the table takes such a prominent place throughout the story of Scripture that mealtimes are a regular moment in the Bible. From the small family gatherings to just two people sharing a meal together, all the way to the extravagant feasts of the Old Testament, the seven festivals that were part of the Hebrew calendar and the feast that went with each of them. There's a sacredness and a specialness to the meal throughout the Bible. In the Bible, to eat a meal with someone was to be at peace with them. When, when people had distanced themselves over the years, the meal was the place of reconnecting. They would share dinner to find peace with each other again. The meal was a place of reconciling with someone who you'd been estranged to. It was a place of finding peace and, and putting all other things aside where enemies would come together 
to stop the fighting, to stop the animosity. It would happen at the table. There's something beautiful and special about the table together. When a family would share a meal with each other, especially after one of the main religious celebrations, it was there at the table that they would literally view that as God was dining with them, as though God had pulled a seat up to the table with them. And it was a sign that they as a family were at peace with one another and with God, that they had the true shalom that scripture speaks of. And then you have Jesus. Jesus who shared many of his moments at the dinner table. I mean, we find Jesus eating with others all the time as we read through the gospels. And it's quite a collection of other people he ate with. I mean, some of his standout stories happened at the table. Jesus regularly ate alongside the outcast. He shared supper with the self-righteous religious leaders. He feasted with Pharisees. He dined with wealthy men whose riches were won by corruption. Jesus crossed the racial, political, social, economic, and gender lines to eat with people who were very much unlike him. Jesus ate with people who broke all the rules. And he ate with people who were just simply broken. And when you were to break bread with Jesus at the table, it was as though all your brokenness just disappeared in that moment, absorbed by him and dissipated. There was something special about the moments that Jesus shared with others. The the religious leaders, though, they didn't look too good on this. The religious do-gooders started whispering behind Jesus' back, you know, Jesus eats with sinners. The whispers went around. They intended it to be an insult, Jesus took it as a compliment. He rather enjoyed his sinner dinners that he had with those people. He loved to mingle with that crowd. And for Jesus, well, he invited everyone to join him at the table, everyone. Like no exceptions to that. They were welcome to eat with him. I think of his last meal, his his great feast, his most special dinner that he had with others. This final feast, the Last Supper, and the crew of dudes who gathered there with him, guys who were soon to abandon him and betray him, who would deny him. And it was there in this meal that we see this scenario play out. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Bread, maybe not totally unlike this. He broke it into pieces. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat for this This is my body. And then he took a cup of wine. Maybe it was fermented, maybe not. He took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And mark my words, he said, I will not drink of this wine again until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, signifying that this was his final meal with them, signifying that something special, significant was happening in this moment, signifying that there was something about to happen that they couldn't quite understand yet. And it was there in that meal that Jesus celebrated his last meal with them. And this meal that he celebrated happened to be the Passover meal. 
The Passover meal was a, a special sacred meal commemorating when God had rescued his people from slavery and death in Egypt and how he had delivered them to a land of promise and prosperity, a, a land of provision that God had taken care of them. He, he had led them from death and slavery and captivity to a land of freedom and peace, eventual peace. It's what we sang of just a minute ago with that song, Egypt. And central to this Passover meal was the lamb, a pure spotless lamb that would be slaughtered and eaten as part of the meal, a central part of the meal. Remembering and celebrating what God had done all those years ago as, as God's people were held captive in Egypt and God raised up Moses to take him back to, to confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go, let the Israelites go. And then plague after plague after plague visited upon the Egyptians because they refused. And the final plague, death, was about to come. And so God instructed his people that they were to slaughter a blemish-free lamb. And with the blood of that lamb, they were to mark their doorposts and their, their households as a sign that they trusted God, that they were willing to sacrifice knowing that God would take care of them and God would deliver them. He would rescue them from death, and he did. And so this Passover meal was the celebration of how God had done all that. And here in this meal, Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood. He, he is in that moment identifying himself as the final Passover lamb, the, the once for all sacrifice for all the sins of all people throughout all of history. Jesus himself is taking that upon himself, saying, this, this is not me. I am going to rescue you. I am the redeemer come for you. I'm your rescuer to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And then in this moment, in this meal, Jesus at the Last Supper initiates what is the ongoing and greatest of his sinner dinners. He, he says, do this in remembrance of me, the, Language that Jesus spoke in, the Greek language that this is recorded in, signifies that this is not just to do this once and you're done. This is an ongoing, do this regularly, often, keep doing this, keep remembering me. And so here at Oklahoma Christian Church, we do. This is a regular part of our regular worship gatherings. When we come together, we take time to celebrate what Christ has done and we remember what he has done. And this remembrance for us is a threefold remembrance. In communion, we look back at what Jesus has done. We look back to what God accomplished through Christ for us. We look to these moments. It's a remembrance that the God of heaven, that Jesus stepped out of the glory of heaven, stepped into the muck and the mire of this world and lived sinlessly and then was betrayed and crucified brutally. He was buried, but only temporarily. And then he rose from the grave triumphantly. And in doing so, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He then ascended to heaven triumphantly and he is preparing our place for us there now, setting the table for us, if you will, at the great banquet feast in heaven. And he's coming back momentarily. This all will end at some point and he will reign victorious. We, we remember what he's done though in that moment and when Jesus was crucified and buried and resurrected that he 
stood triumphant over sin, over Satan, over death, that death has lost its sting, it's lost its power for those whose hope, whose trust is in him, that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, that we have no power to rescue ourselves, to save ourselves. Our sin is too great. We need him. So we look back and we celebrate that. But we also look around We look back to the past, but we look around in the present to see what God is still doing amongst us, to our own salvation stories, how he has spoken to us, how he's called each of us individually to himself, our individual salvation stories. But we look also at what he's doing in our community, what God is up to as he continues to move and shape us as individuals and collectively. We look at things like last week when we saw 20 people move from darkness to light who got reborn through the water of baptism into new life in Jesus. 20 people reborn into Jesus last week. Church, that's what we're celebrating. We look and we see that God is still on the move. What a beautiful thing. And we celebrate that even in this. We remember that he is still here. He's still moving. But we also look ahead to what Christ has yet to do. That there will be a day when he comes back triumphantly to claim his people as his own, to welcome us into glory. And in that moment, all sin, all shame, all suffering, all striving will cease as those who have chosen to surrender to Jesus as leader, as Lord, who believe in him as Savior, who trust him as rescuer of their lives, that they will be taken home to glory with him. So we look back, we look around, we look ahead. That's how we remember in this moment. And as we look ahead, we remember that in that moment at the end, we will join around the great banquet table of heaven, the wedding feast of the bride, the church, and her groom, Jesus Christ. And we will celebrate there at the king's table. I mean, church, just think of the honor of that. We're going to dine with the king, invited to pull a seat up to the table. I mean, there to dine with the king, such an honor to, to have and enjoy the favor, the protection, the provision, the power, the presence of the king himself. And who is it that's invited to that moment? Who's invited to the table? Well, it's everyone. It's everyone. Unfortunately, though, to protect and to honor this meal, the sacredness of this celebration. Sometimes church leaders had gotten it wrong. To protect and honor this, that they put limitations on it to keep people from taking it in an unworthy way, to keep people from taking it too lightly. You know, the early church celebrated communion as part of a larger feast, as a meal. Sometimes it would be referred to as the agape feast, the love feast. But it was usually a meal in someone's home. The church would gather there. They would celebrate. There'd be song and reading and reading of scripture and prayer. And it, it was a grand celebration in the home. And they would celebrate with breaking the bread and drinking of the cup together in that moment. But along the way, sometimes that had been abused and people had taking advantage of the meal. And so to keep that from happening, church leaders through the centuries began to say, well, if we take it less often, then we can put more parameters on it. We can guard the sacredness, the specialness of that meal. And so in many traditions, it became seasonal or even only yearly. Even though in the early church, it was weekly or even more often. 
And then to ensure the sacredness and the specialness of the meal, the church leaders took it upon themselves to be the officiants. You had to have the legitimate space to tell people who was and was not allowed to eat the meal. And so some were excluded and some were welcomed and they, church leaders, deemed who was righteous enough, who was worthy to eat at this meal. In the early 1800s, there was a young Scotsman named Alexander Campbell who attended a church where only people deemed righteous enough could participate in the Lord's Supper. And Campbell one day was sitting on the steps of the church and he himself had been deemed worthy that he could participate. He was given a token. He had to place a token in and then he could take communion. But he sat on the church steps and held his token in his hand and watched friends of his, followers of Christ, who were deemed unworthy. Watch them denied, watch them turned away, watch them walk past because they could not participate in this. Bothered Campbell because he knew, he knew that communion is supposed to be a meal. It's designed to be a meal for all those who believe in and trust in Jesus, who follow him, who trust that he is both Lord and Savior. And no exceptions, that's, that's the requirement. Do you believe Jesus is your Lord? Do you Follow him as such. Do you believe he's savior? You're welcome to the meal. And communion was supposed to be this unifying moment for the church, a place of our common union, our community together, celebrating what Christ has done for us, a place of our, our shared celebration, of our shared salvation that we have in Jesus alone, that it's by grace through faith that we enter into this not of ourselves, but of what he's done for us. That communion is a great reminder of that. It's supposed to be a unifying moment. But for many, for most churches at that time, communion had become a disunifying moment, a way of saying who's in and who's out, who's worthy, who's unworthy. The in crowd, the out crowd, even within the church, within the group of followers of Christ. And so Campbell who later helped launch what's called the Restoration Movement, a movement of churches trying to restore the early church principles and practices, distinctives. A movement of churches that gave birth to our church, Oklahoma Christian, and churches like us. Campbell advocated for open communion, which is what we practice here. And that simply means that if you follow Jesus, you believe that he is Savior, you believe that he is Lord, and you follow him, then you're welcome to join us in this moment. You're welcome to celebrate communion with us. But it makes one wonder, is there a right way? I mean, that was the intention of the early church. They didn't want it to be taken wrong, so is there a right way to take communion? I mean, after all, what do we even call this thing? Do we call it communion? Do, do we call it the Lord's Supper? Do we call it Eucharist? Some of you may come from that tradition and that might be in your background. Eucharist simply means to give thanks. All, all those seem right. And how are we to take it? Are we to take it by intention, which means you dip the bread in the juice and then you eat it that way? Or you, you have a different way of taking it? Maybe you take the bread separately and you pass around a common cup and everyone, everyone drinks from the same cup, literally the common cup way. Is that the right way? Or, or do we take it individually? Each person gets their piece of bread and gets their juice. Is there a right way, a wrong way? What's the right way to take it? And what, what are we supposed to, is it, 
Is it wine? Is it juice? Is it, which one is it supposed to be? What about the bread? Is it supposed to be unleavened? No yeast? Is it supposed to be like a cracker? Is it okay to have a loaf like this? I mean, what's the right way? What's the wrong way? How are we supposed to do this? Is it supposed to be just bread and juice or is it an actual meal like the early church celebrated? I, I think of the times once a month when our seniors get together for their young at heart luncheon and I think of their, their meal they celebrate together. That might actually be the closest we get these days to the way the early church celebrated. I think of the old church potluck, which maybe it's my sinful gluttony, but I'm an advocate for the church potluck as a way we celebrate communion. I mean, we just get together. My kids ask me, Dad, what's your favorite kind of food? I say church potluck. They say, no, that's a kind of meal. I say, no, no, no. When you dump it all on the plate, then almost that's one food. It's just beautiful together. I and mean, that's the way you do it, baby. Like, maybe that's the right way to do communion. Is that how we're supposed to do this? Do we do it in silence? Or we do it with loud celebration, singing, dancing, talking. I mean, after all, the early church celebrated these meals with readings of scripture and song and dance after the meal. A celebration, vibrancy. You, you think of the upper room, and we only have part of the conversation recorded for us in scripture, but there was conversation around that table with the disciples and Jesus there was interaction with one another. What's the right way to do this? Is it silence or is it loudness? Is there singing? I mean, after all, one of the ways that we see throughout Scripture of people responding to the work of God is by joining together in song. It's as though it's a prayer set to melody. That's really what our praise songs are. So is there a right way or wrong? Well, we can say this. For as many people are gathered together, we will have at least that many preferences on the way we should do this. So we need to be really careful with the shoulds. And we need to make sure that we talk about method as could and meaning as should. That there's a bunch of ways we can't take this and for most of them, they're no more or less sacred or righteous than any other way. So we must elevate the meaning over the method. We must elevate why over how. And that's just a good principle from Scripture. If there is a right way to take it, I would offer this, that we take it in gratitude and humility. Humility that we have no place at this table without the invitation of Jesus. Apart from the sacrifice and the power of Christ, we have no belonging at his table. Without what Christ has done for us, we don't deserve to be here. So in humility, we remember that, that our sinfulness makes us unworthy. But the righteousness that we receive from Christ alone and the invitation we receive from him makes us worthy. And so we have gratitude because of that. And so if gratitude, humility are the right ways to take it, then then we see that maybe the wrong way to take it is in selfishness and in carelessness. After all, that's what we see happening in the church of Corinth in the first century. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth because they were doing it wrong. He said, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. You're treating it like any other old meal. For some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Now, let's just pause right there. 
This is a large meal. They gathered together. Think church potluck. Imagine after the blessing, the prayer is given, that somebody race, rushes, races to the front of the line, and they fill up their plate, and they just keep heaping food on top of them. They get this huge pile of food, and they go, and they sit, and they've brought maybe a lot of food, and they're thinking, well, because I brought a lot of the food to the potluck, I'm going to eat a lot of the food. But then somebody who doesn't have much, who wasn't able to bring much, by the time they get up to the line, there's nothing left. And so they're supposed to celebrate this meal, and they're sitting there going hungry. And the person who went first, I mean, they've eaten their fill, but the whole time they've been drinking, and their drink was not unfermented. It, it was wine, wine, not juice, wine. And imagine if your church potluck, imagine if our communion moment were primarily characterized, defined by gluttony and drunkenness. That was communion in this church at Corinth. Gluttony and drunkenness. So Paul's calling them out on it. It says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. So do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And he is coming again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup in the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's a pretty steep statement. That's why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So do some self-examination. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ. Now let's pause there. When he talks about without honoring the body of Christ, what he's talking about is not Jesus himself, his body. He's talking about Jesus' body, the church, this metaphorical sense of his body. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, the fellowship of believers, of followers. He says, if you take it in an unworthy way, you don't honor one another then you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And he has some pretty steep things that he goes on to say about that. He says, if you don't examine the way you treat one another in this gathering, and then you go ahead and you take communion, God's judgment comes upon you, not his blessing. The examination that he talks about is not so much a self-reflective, introspective examination of how we have sinned before God throughout the week. Not that that's a bad thing. I mean, obviously, it's a good thing for us to practice self-examination, but that should be a daily practice, a daily discipline of repentance, of acknowledging, God, I've missed it. And only because of your great love and your salvation given to me can I still come to you. Only because of your blood can I find forgiveness. But that should be a daily thing. Let us not wait to just a few moments in a service each week to do that. No, the examination he's encouraging us to have in that moment is that we look at how we treat one another in our fellowship, how we treat other brothers and sisters, because the principle of Scripture from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, is this truth, that you can't be good with God if you're not good with his people. If you're not treating God's people good, you're not good with him. If there's a disconnect if there's a disunifying moment between you and another believer, then there's a break between you and God. And we've got to get that right. We've got to do whatever depends on us to make sure we're good with one another. And that's as far as we've got to take it. That's only as far as it depends on us. But we've got to make sure we're able to say, I've done what's in my power to make sure we're reconciled. 
And that's what Paul is calling us to in that moment. You know, perhaps a great way to put Paul's exhortation into practice is not that we would bow our heads, close our eyes, and sit in silence, but that we would lift our head and open our eyes and look across the table to the other brothers and sisters in the room, seeing if there's someone we might need to get right with. Seeing if there's a way for us to celebrate our common union in Christ, our community together in this fellowship, to celebrate our shared salvation, what Christ has done for us alone, that we are here together on common ground, that we all sit at the table only because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. And in this moment, maybe we need to remember that. We allow this moment then in that way to become a unifying experience. Friends, it's healthy for us to remember that God himself is community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, community, and we are created in the divine image, the relational image of God. We are created to reflect the divine community in our community with one another. And so what that means is that while our relationship with Jesus is always personal, it is never private. Our relationship with Jesus is always wrapped up in the context of the community of believers, of the other followers. It's never a private thing, just me and Jesus. No, it's me, Jesus, and all of you. That's the picture we see in Scripture. And so we got to be careful that we don't just turn this into an individualistic thing. You know, this smacks in the face of the radical individualism in our world. But unfortunately, the individual spirit of our world has infiltrated and influenced the church sometimes in very damaging ways. We talk a lot about our personal relationship with Jesus, that he is our personal Lord and Savior. And that's good, that's true, that's just not enough. Because the scripture calls us to a kingdom. Jesus calls us to a kingdom, to a people, to build the body of Christ. He calls us to one another, as well as to himself. So often we will read the Bible and practice other spiritual disciplines in solitude, when in fact, most of the books of the Bible, most of the letters of the Bible were written, not to individuals, but to communities of believers. So often we will close our eyes, bow our heads in prayer, and turn somewhat individualistic, turn into ourselves, when in fact, most prayers in the Bible were prayed with eyes open out loud as a together thing, a community moment. And then, then we have this communion moment, that sadly has become one of the most individual times at church. Even though the name of it tells us it's to be done in community. We close our eyes, we separate ourselves from others, we turn inward when in fact maybe we should be turning outward. It strikes me that the Bible frames this, that Jesus frames this as a family dinner, this Lord's Supper, this communion as a family meal. Whenever the Fitz fam gets together and we eat a meal in silence, it's usually not a good thing. <laughs> it's usually because something's gone wrong. Somebody said something, somebody else has been offended or hurt or mad, and boom, everything's quiet. And it's just like, Whoa. I mean, like, that's not a good thing. Heads down, eyes closed, eating alone and quiet. That's not typically. I mean, the good Fitz fam meals is when we're talking over each other and we're celebrating each other and we're asking questions and we're encouraging and sharing life with and telling stories to one another and we're celebrating in the midst and it just seems a little awkward to me that maybe we have this family meal each week where nobody talks to one another. What Christ gave us with this gift of communion is precisely the opportunity to get beyond ourselves, to look past our own sinfulness, to look past ourselves and look to this 
community of believers, to share together. When we embrace too much individualism, we actually deny our true identity. We deny that we are made in the image of God for relationship, for community, in community. Now, I'm not advocating that we invite a bunch of chaos into our weekly gathering for a communion moment that all of a sudden everybody's just chit-chatting and it's crazy and we lose the reverence for God in that moment. That's not what I'm saying. But perhaps, perhaps what God would desire from us is that we are a bit more intentional with our interaction with one another, even in that moment, than maybe what we typically provide. Maybe the way that we've learned, for those who've been in the church for a long time, the way we've learned to take communion has been celebrated, has been learned maybe more by the practicality of the situation, of how long it took to pass trays and all of that. Maybe that's shaped us more than the scriptures, than the way the early church did it. But perhaps in this moment, we would be better suited to get out of our seat and walk to a sister or a brother and ask forgiveness or offer forgiveness or to speak a word of encouragement or to offer a word of gratitude. Thank you so much for, to just let them know we're glad you're here at this table in this moment with us. To speak life, to speak blessing, perhaps that might honor God at least as much as our contrition over our own sin. Perhaps we need to embrace both of these, and there's a tension there. I know for certain we should be inviting others to join us at this table, but maybe not beginning with this table. Maybe we begin like Jesus did with other tables. We invite people to join us at the table at the restaurant, the table at the cafe, the table at the coffee shop, the table in our home, maybe even the table in the pub, in an effort where we get to invite them to find Jesus. That, that maybe by, by meeting them there, may, maybe there'd be this beautiful thing that would happen. I mean, just imagine how beautiful it would be if the normal activity for those who follow Jesus was to invite strangers to become friends across a meal, across a table, in hopes that one day they might just join us at this table, at this meal, just like Jesus did. And, and friend, you should know that you have a place here, that you are invited to this meal. Now, if you don't follow Jesus, if you don't want anything to do with him, then you need not participate. But you do need to know that in rejecting Jesus, there is no blessing. But if you will follow him, you'll have a place at this table. For Jesus said that he is the bread of life, and referring to this bread at a different time, I mean, This bread only goes so far, but Jesus is the true bread of life. He said, whoever comes to him will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. We eat and we drink in this moment to remember that Christ has satisfied our hunger and he's quenched our thirst. Friend, I don't know what you're thirsty for. I don't know what you're hungering for, but I know this, that no thing and no one will ever satisfy your hunger, will ever satisfy your thirst like Jesus can. For in Jesus alone, it's the lasting satisfaction. At his table and his table alone, will you find true belonging and true acceptance? Will you find lasting peace and provision? At his table alone, will you find blessing and you'll find life? And so it's my hope and it's the hope of every believer of Jesus in here 
It's our hope that you would put your hope in Jesus if you have not yet, and that you would join us at this table of belonging. Now church, in just a moment, we're actually gonna celebrate communion together a little bit differently. I'm gonna pray for us in a moment. After we pray, we're gonna make our way to the stations. But first, I'm gonna give you some directions. We have a handful of stations around the room, three in the front, two in the back, one on each side of the balcony. And in just a moment, after we pray, we invite you to make your way to one of those stations and to take communion there. We invite you to receive the blessing from the person in front of you. But we encourage you to offer blessing to the person behind you. Don't just take, eat, and drink and say nothing. But you turn to the person behind you and you bless them. You speak life into them. And I know for some of you, you're like, whoa, 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 hold on. You're making me say something to somebody else in church. And some of you are like, well, I came with somebody I know, and that's great. Some of you are like, but what if the person behind me I don't know? All the better, all the more beautiful, because isn't that what this table's about? That we would say, I'm so glad you're at this table to receive the life Jesus gave to you. That we just say, Jesus sacrificed for you. You know, you won't say it wrong. Some of you, you may need to offer forgiveness. Some of you may need to ask forgiveness from someone else before you receive this. Some of you might make your way across the room to encourage someone who you know just needs to hear a word of courage breathed into their soul. Some of you might just want to say thank you. Some of you might want to just offer a blessing of life to someone. We've got a couple things that you can say. They're printed at those tables. You can, if you don't have other words like me, I've got a million of them. If you're on the other end of the spectrum, you don't have many, we've got some for you. You can just read from that card that's at the table over the person behind you. But receive the blessing. We've got somebody who'll be at each one of the tables to begin this. We'll speak the first blessing, and then we encourage you to turn and speak that blessing over someone else. You receive it, you speak it. They receive it, they speak it. This is gonna put some of you out of your comfort zone. It'll put you right into the place where God wants you today. So after I pray, you make your way to one of those stations. If you are physically unable to make your way to the station, you just raise your hand, you let us know. If you can't raise your hand, you just shout out a hoop and we'll bring it to you. And partway through, we're gonna begin singing. Don't be flustered. You'll still be able to hear what's going on at the table. You'll still be able to hear the blessing. You'll still be able to speak it. But then you join with us in song and let that song be your prayer. Allow the words of the song to become your prayer. Simply set to melody for our Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have invited us to the table of belonging. That you prepare a feast for us. God, we thank you so much that we can come in this moment and remember all that you have done for us, how you sacrificed for us, how you have saved us, how you died for us, how you rose victorious over the grave, how you ascended triumphantly into heaven, remembering that you will come back for us and that one day we will sit with you in the great glory feast of eternity at the table of our King along with one another. And so, God, in this moment, we celebrate that 
in humility and in gratitude, we celebrate you for you're the only one deserving of the glory of the praise. But God, we thank you that you've ushered us in along with one another to a community where we belong now. What a beautiful thing, Lord. So bless this moment, bless this bread, bless this juice, bless this cup. Bless all who give and receive the blessing today. For your glory and yours alone we pray, amen.